Spurs in full cry here. Welcome, listeners, to another bonus episode of The Extra Inch. My name is Wendy, and I'm joined once again by Alex Benham, who is a public health researcher and PhD candidate at Oxford University. Alex, welcome back. How are you coping with lockdown life? I'm doing okay, Chris, as well as I think we can kind of do in these circumstances. I'm trying to do normal things, trying to do some gardening, writing, running. It just feels very odd to try and lead a normal life in such deeply abnormal times. But um, yeah, I think I'm coping as as well as one can in the circumstances. Glad to hear it. Um, So we spoke a while ago, Alex, about Project Restart, about football coming back amidst this, uh, using your expertise and knowledge of previous pandemics and I I think we're both quite proud of how the podcast came out we certainly got some nice feedback we also got masses of questions some of which we're going to try and tackle in this podcast I would say if you've not listened to that first podcast we did with Alex go back and listen to that first that is going to be really important because the questions are going to be follow-ups on that and you'll want to know what Alex spoke about uh, in relation to well all the previous pandemics we discussed so the Spanish flu the bubonic plague and the government responses in uh, in Britain in particular to, to those. Uh, yeah, so let's start off, Alex, by talking about where we are now, because yeah. things have changed a little bit since yeah. since we spoke. The public health messaging has moved on, for example. It's changed from stay at home to stay alert. Yeah. Plus, we've had, uh, latterly, this sideshow of Dominic Cummings' um, trip up north, yeah. uh, breaching of the lockdown conditions. I'm interested, from you as a, a public health expert someone who understands the impact that has uh, on messaging what have you made firstly of the of the stay at home to stay alert change well i think it's entirely premature i think this is possibly the worst moment at which that change could be made i am not at all comforted by the knowledge that it seems to be taken and it seems to be being accelerated partly to defend one special advisor's political career um it's extraordinary to me that the need to protect Dominic Cummings is changing literal lockdown policy in Britain. That's astounding. But yeah, I think what's being missed amongst all of this discussion of Cummings is the seriousness of the situation that we are in and the the stage of the pandemic that we're actually at. We have not managed to suppress the virus and things are extremely bad. We have a very high level of infection still, a lot of new cases every day, tragically a lot of new deaths. There is nothing in the current situation in Britain that suggests to me that we should be relaxing the lockdown if anything we should be making it more severe and yes it's a it's a somber day today uh, we found out that the uk now has the highest rate per capita of confirmed deaths from covid19 worldwide it's averaging close to five in every million people per day there is an, a strong argument to say that we are managing this as badly if not the worst of any nation on earth we believe over sixty thousand people have died in the uk from coronavirus it's 
an absolute disaster. And I think the attempt to claim that we are through the worst of it is utterly irresponsible and extremely destructive. Last time on the podcast, I talked about the British response to pandemics in the past, as you're saying, Chris, and I talked about the bubonic plague in India and Spanish flu on the British mainland. And the point I was trying to make was that the British response then was defined by three key elements, uh, an initial period of denial, followed by a protracted series of delays, all of which was driven by a desire to prioritise the health of the economy over the well-being of the people who actually work within it. And... In the last few days, more details have come to light about the British government's response to the current pandemic and have made even clearer the parallels between the present and the past. So, While the coronavirus rapidly spread in the first months of this year, the British government initially denied the seriousness of the pandemic. We had, in February, as the first cases began to emerge in Britain, the health secretary informing the press that the risk to the public remained moderate, while the prime minister assured reporters that, quote, people have every reason to be confident and calm about that kind of thing. This was despite warnings from epidemiologists and public health specialists. On March 3rd, the government, by a sage, was presented with a bleak warning by two modelling teams. According to their models, the current strategy of mitigation would result in an astonishing 250,000 deaths from COVID-19. However, instead of acting on this dire warning, the government then delayed taking serious action for the next 20 days. On March the 3rd, when the government were given this warning, there were just 14,000 infections in the UK. By March the 23rd, when the government finally initiated a lockdown, there were 1.5 million. The government did not act on the information they received via SAGE. They continued to deny the seriousness of the pandemic. On March the 3rd, Boris Johnson told reporters that against the advice of his own experts, he would continue to shake hands. Uh, he boasted to report that he'd been on a hospital on a ward with coronavirus patients and shook hands with everybody, you'll be pleased to know. The quotes are staggering. Coronavirus was, after all, to quote Johnson, only a moderate illness and it didn't prevent him visiting a rugby match at Twickenham on March the 7th, again insisting on shaking hands with players and other guests. The desire to deny a need to respond or to delay responding was driven by the government's desire to protect the economy and this was something that Cummings, in his official capacity, was very much entangled with. On February 3rd, Johnson used a major speech which has Cummings hung fingerprints all over it to denounce what he called the bizarre autarkic rhetoric of attempts to restrict movement due to the pandemic and stated Britain's opposition to so-called panic that might end up doing an unnecessary economic damage. And I think what's being missed amongst all of this is that after January, Britain was meant to be entering a new era. Brexit was meant to have delivered a new wave of freedom, innovation and prosperity. And this was Cummings' message, which was being delivered by the government, that optimism was the order of the day, that coronavirus threatened to put a dampener on the victory play. And I think what has happened to Cummings and what people are feeling now is a sense of anger at a government that hasn't just recently jeopardised public health, but has consistently put public health seconds to its concerns for the economy and for the sort of general worldwide reputation of Britain and its industry. So I feel that it's important to contextualise what has happened to Cummings within a broader pattern of neglect and a culture of apathy amongst the government towards the well-being of the British public. Wow, yeah, it's um, it, it feels pretty stark to hear it laid out like that. Um... There are timelines. If people are interested in in reading these timelines, um, seeing some of the facts themselves, the Times wrote a lengthy article about this over the weekend, just gone. And the group led by donkeys, who were the group that put the large video screen outside 10 Downing Street and then briefly outside Dominic Cummings' house, 
they've also produced their own timeline too. Uh, if you look them up, you'll find a link to their website, which has this timeline in a very neatly displayed format. And the counter-argument, I suppose, might be that this is wholly unprecedented, that it doesn't compare to previous pandemics because everything's changed since then, that the demographics changed, yeah. that the population density's changed. But frankly, we, ha- we have more experts now. We have more people who are, who are um, well-placed to, to yes. inform the government and advise the government about how to respond to these things we have all that historical uh, data yeah. that people like alex study that that can be used to to make uh policy decisions exactly that, that's what a government's there for uh so it's 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 pretty devastating that uh kind of you're left in a position where you have to lay out things in the way that you just have alex and it's it's quite upsetting but we're going to talk about this in the context of, of football returning i do think it's important to have that backdrop of the the, the the current position in the back of our minds as discussing this because it kind of makes the idea of, of football coming back even more shocking yeah, and, and uh, really brings it into focus. Um, let's start off with a question from Seamus Hart. He wanted to hear about the testing. He said, are the Premier League not doing any PCR testing? How does this compare to the Bundesliga's test protocols and La Liga? So there's been a huge amount of confusion about what tests the Premier League are actually using. A fortnight ago, most of the detail we had about these tests came from a couple of articles by Sam Wallace in the Daily Telegraph. These articles claimed that these tests would be antigen tests, and this is the information I had when I was speaking on the podcast last time. It subsequently turned out, through no fault of Wallace, that he wasn't actually correct. We now know both the identity of the company providing these tests, which is Prenetics, a biotech company based in Hong Kong, and that these tests are not in fact antigen tests, but rather the very precisely named reverse transcription quantitative polymerized chain reaction tests, or RT-QPCR tests for short. The difference between an antigen test and a qPCR test is extremely pedantic and not one that anyone would expect a football journalist to to have a knowledge it's not it's extremely specialist knowledge which I don't think it's fair to expect any normal member of the public to have the difference is a technicality, instead of looking for antigens, which are a particular structure on the outside of the virus, you are looking for viral RNA, the molecule that stores the genetic code of the virus. So to briefly explain the qPCR test, you take a sample from a subject, usually via a nasal or throat swab, you copy the, the RNA in the sample into DNA, and then you try to match it against the genetic sequence of the coronavirus. To determine the outcome of the test, you measure the quantity of the viral RNA in the sample against a set threshold, above which person is positive, below which they are negative. Aside from this technical difference, PCR tests have the same fundamental weakness as an antigen test. For someone with COVID-19 to test positive with a QPCR test, there has to be a large enough quantity of the virus in the swab for it to be detected. This is a really fundamental difference. Interesting. So th- this is about the this is about making the threshold. The the amount of virus on the swab yeah. takes it above the threshold yeah. and makes it into a positive test. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so Gareth Thomas follows up on that. He says, I'm confused about the accuracy of the tests. If you're in the 5 to 10% of cases where your test was not accurate, does that mean that you are a false negative or positive, i.e. the test was wrong, or simply that the test reading is worthless? So in medical literature, accuracy is usually defined as the sum of the true positive and true negative results divided by the sum of all the test results conducted. So that 5 to 10% reflects the sum of false positives and false 
false negatives. The problem is this accuracy statistic is disputed, especially when it comes to the COVID-19 qPCR test. So as I said last time, the problem with coronavirus is that, like most pulmonary viruses, the quantity of the virus in someone's respiratory system varies massively from person to person. Some people will have large quantities of the virus, some almost none at all. The quantity also varies according to the stage of the infection of the subject, so most importantly, some people will only have a detectable quantity of the virus in their system for a few days after the beginning of the infection. So this is one of the reasons the coronavirus qPCR test can have a higher false negative test rate, because it misses the virus even though someone actually has coronavirus. So according to Dr. James Gill at Warwick Medical School, when tested alone, the PCR test for coronavirus has a 66.7% detection rate within the first week. So about 67% of people who have coronavirus will test positive on the PCR test. That is a very high and very worrying false negative rate. Funnily enough, Pronetics, the company responsible for the Premier League's PCR test, doesn't acknowledge any of these problems. Instead, Avi Lazarou, who is the chief executive of Pronetics, claims that their test is 98.8% accurate. This statistic, as far as I know, is based on lab results with a perfect sample, which either has large, easily detectable quantities of viral RNA, or, alternately, none at all. My lab-based colleagues have a saying which applies to all testing. Garbage in, garbage out. Bad samples produce bad results. The messy complexity of a real test sample will lower the quantity, the accuracy of the test substantially, leaving a real detection rate of around 67%. There's also the fact that the Premier League have reportedly, and very worryingly, agreed with Pronetics that samples will only be taken by swab from the front of the nose rather than from the back of the throat, as is usual practice. This is reportedly to limit the invasiveness of the procedure, but I fear it will also further limit the quantity of the virus the swab is able to collect, and thus also the potential utility of the test as a whole. So we have a situation in which this qPCR test, with all of its limitations, is being trumpeted by the Premier League and by Pronetics as an almost perfect safety measure. Given the reality behind the 98.8% accuracy statistic, however, it's fair to say that the claims made by Lazarou are, at the very least, misleading. And I think it's a kind of interesting fact that this isn't the first time Lazarou has been accused of making deceptive claims. In 2015, Lazarou was actually accused of unfair or deceptive acts by the US Federal Trade Commission relating to an app called Mole Detective that purported to detect skin cancer. The Federal Trade Commission concluded that we haven't found any scientific evidence that Mole Detective can accurately assess melanoma risk. If you're concerned that a mole may be cancerous, they pleaded, please see a health professional. Lazarou agreed to a settlement of a suspended payment of nearly $60,000. He waived his right to appeal, which is never the sign of an innocent party, and barred from, was barred by the FTC from making any further deceptive health claims about his products. So I would say that Lazarou play, Lazarou's claims, and I, I want to be very careful what I say here because I'm sure Pronetics has an excellent legal department, but Lazarou's claims have a history of being somewhat unreliable, and I think this history should be remembered when we're discussing the fact that they are being trusted to run the entirety of the Premier League's testing procedure. I mean, Alex, when you look at the, the Premier League's fit and proper person test <laughs> when uh, allowing yeah. someone to buy a football club, yeah. this is this is fairly unsurprising, yeah. isn't it? I mean, you can just imagine these kind of... Uh, proper football men types sat in a sat in a room 
whilst someone comes in from a pharmaceutical firm <laughs> wearing a sharp suit, uh, throwing out medical terminology and says, this this test is 98% certain to, yeah. to be able to tell you if this player has, <laughs> has coronavirus. I, I mean, basically, you need to have the right people in the room. You need yeah. someone like you in the room to be able to interpret whether this person is, is what they're saying stacks up. Yeah. Because, like you've just said, 98% is a completely correct claim. That is, that is a valid thing to say. There's nothing you can yeah. disagree with there. It's just that's taken out of context. Absolutely. And within context, it's far, it's far less certain than mm-hmm. 98% because you're not even getting the virus from the swab in the first place, necessarily. Precisely. Very worrying. Okay. So so we, we're concerned about the testing. That's uh, that's a new... That's, we, we, you were already vaguely concerned about the testing, but this is extra concern Absolutely. Now. I think before I had general concerns about antigen testing, and now that we found out that there are, in fact, qPCR tests, I have very specific concerns about the reliability of uh, frenetics test. It's gone from a a general sense of malaise to a very particular set of worries. Right. And Seamus Hart says, how difficult is it to correctly perform a really invasive test? Is the DIY home testing some championship clubs are doing a waste of time? This is an extraordinary story, and I was genuinely staggered when I read that this was even being considered as a a possibility. So the quality of a test for a pulmonary virus is, as I've said already, almost entirely dependent on the quality of the sample. From what I understand from from my colleagues, the, the highest quantity of the virus is at the back of the front. So to get a good swab, you actually need a pretty invasive swab. Swabs taken from less deep or more superficial sites, such as in the nostrils, as the Premier League is proposing, will be pretty unreliable. DIY testing, it, it shouldn't even be countenanced, even if players want an accurate test. And I think it's important to say that given the potential costs of testing positive and how we know that all players will risk injury to keep playing, I mean, you know, anyone who's seen how Harry Kane rushes back from injury would probably doubt Harry Kane's reliability to carry out an accurate test. That's the same in the championship. You know, players want to play. They know that their careers are short. They know that they are in a game that is incredibly pressurised to play as much as possible and to perform at the highest level as often as possible. I wouldn't want to put that burden of making a decision on whether to report or test accurately on players. Even if the players with the best intent and will in the world, which I'm sure a majority of players would do, would test honestly, they won't be able to carry out a proper swab collection. It's it's not something that can be done by a member of the public. It needs to be done by a medical professional. There's a reason that medical professionals do the swabs at every single other test site in the UK. You know, people have to be trained to do this. It's it's not something we no one not anyone can just stick a swallow up their nose and hope for the best. This needs to be done properly and scientifically to have any kind of reliability. It's it's staggering to me. No one would suggest self-testing for often harmless drugs. You know, the Premier League's drug testing would never contemplate letting players do that themselves. Why are we considering this for a potentially fatal virus? It's absolutely staggering that the championship is even considering allowing players to do this. Mm. The thing that interests me is the the decision to use the the nasal testing rather than the the throat testing. My I have a friend who works in the NHS on the front line, and he's he's had the virus. Uh, he he was tested through a nasal swab, and he described it as feeling like someone was rummaging around in your brain. Yeah. It's not a nice test. N- none of these tests are going to be nice. So surely you want to go with the one that gives the best possible um, accuracy. And you know I'm. I think the problem is that the Premier League is trying to win round the players. They're very aware that there is somewhere, according to reports, between 50 players, perhaps more, who are adamant that they don't want to go back to playing. They know that that 
may spread and that more players may consider turning them down. And they are desperately trying to persuade players that this can be done easily, safely, reliably. And I think part of that is trying to limit the unpleasantness of these pretty unpleasant tests. You know, having a deep throat swab is very unpleasant. And the thought of having to do that twice a week for the indefinite future is pretty concerning. So I think we can understand why players wouldn't want that. And I think we can also understand why the Premier League might be tempted to try and limit the unpleasantness of the test with little consideration of the potential scientific effects of that, given what we know already about the Premier League's grasp of the scientific process. Mm. Moving away briefly from the testing, I think we'll come back to it a bit later. Uh, We had another comment. This was, in his words, a small critique on the the previous podcast. This is from Colin, uh, who on Twitter is CoolCole1. He said, you omitted or failed to emphasise the fact that BAME footballers are at a higher risk. Did you want to add anything on that, Alec? Yeah, this was a really great comment and one that I was actually, I was thinking about after we, we finished the podcast and it struck me that I had completely left this out. And I think it's actually a really important point. Part of the reason that I didn't talk about it before was that I didn't know enough about it and I didn't feel like a comment probably at the time, but I should have footnoted it. And Colin makes an excellent critique. It's, it's very, very welcome. So the relationship between risk and race, particularly as it pertains to BME Premier League players and Project Restart is extremely important. It is a fact that generally COVID-19 deaths in Britain are twice as high for BME people as they are for white people. They are almost four times as high for those from a black British African background. These are clearly pretty staggering statistics. So there are two predominant causes of this increased vulnerability. Firstly, BME people are overrepresented in the riskiest jobs. A third of all working age black Africans are employed in key worker roles, 50% more than the share of the white British population. Pakistani, Indian and black African men are respectively 90, 150% and 310% more likely to work in healthcare than white British men. And this sort of distribution of labour goes all the way back to the end of the empire, the deliberate recruitment of Commonwealth migrants to the NHS and transport for London and so on. So there's a, a long history of this, but it explains why the type of labour that BME people in Britain do makes them more at risk to a pulmonary virus like COVID-19. Uh, secondly, BME people suffer the effects of structural racism in Britain, as is well established. BME people work more risky jobs, but they also have poorer housing with more overcrowding in areas with more pollution and less access to green space. And these contribute to a particular prevalence of underlying health conditions, uh, especially amongst those with a Bangladeshi, Pakistani or Black Caribbean background. So it's unsurprising that black players from working class backgrounds, Dini, Kante, William, Rose, Sterling, have been most public about their concerns with Project Restart. They are from, by all accounts, the most at-risk group. Their friends and families are more likely to have underlying health conditions than white players, and they are more likely to be key workers. And we can we can recall this pretty easily by just looking at the background of the families of some of these players. So let's not forget that Sterling's mother used to work as a cleaner, as did Kante's mother, as did William's mother. You know, the families of these people, the immediate families of these players, used to do the jobs which are most at risk, and some of their extended family will still do so. They understand better than I think a lot of players in the Premier League how easy it is to be exposed to this virus and also why their families in particular and why their friends are particularly at risk from this virus. 
And I think it's extremely important to say that it's not the case that there is just a uniform group of people at any stage in this pandemic. There is always differentiations by by race, class, and it's extremely important not to lose that in talking about footballers. Not all footballers are the same, just in the same way that Premier League footballers are not the same as uh, players in League One or League Two. Not all Premier League players are the same either. And I think it's extremely important to emphasise that black players from working class backgrounds have a particular well-recorded risk to, from coronavirus and are entirely justified, in my opinion, as taking any measures they deem necessary to protect themselves. And if that means, as Dini is doing, as Kanti is doing, staying away entirely from training, then all power to them. That should be their call. Another point, and this is in, this is so simplistic compared to to what you just said, Alex. But the the emotional, extra emotional baggage that players from a BME background will, will have as a result of everything you've just said is significant. Um, if people in their communities, in their families, in their friendship groups are suffering Absolutely. more from this disease, yeah, yeah. which we know is is a true yeah. fact, then it'll be playing on their minds a lot more. Uh, not only will they be worried about their friends and family, they'll be worried about themselves. Yeah. I mean. I know I know when I had a scare with with my dad it really very quickly hit home how serious this is I I think it's I have friends who um, have have told me that in some ways they've actually enjoyed lockdown that it's given them an opportunity to spend time with their children Um, they weren't particularly worried about socializing every weekend anyway because they're parents they're happy to stay in with the family and you know go on walks in the countryside and cook nice meals together and do all these things and so they're getting enforced family time which which is a lovely thing and you know, I, I I appreciate that that that's um, really important to my friends, but also they wouldn't be having that nice experience if someone close to them was was ill Absolutely. or had a, was at risk of becoming yeah. ill. And I think sometimes. It's very easy to overlook the um, seriousness of something like this until it has a direct impact on your life. Yep. And if players from a BME background are suffering more than uh, than white players, then of course it's going to have more of an impact. Of course it will mentally, their well being, uh, th- their physical health. It's just natural. So you're, you're right. Um, it was it was a correct critique from Colin, and I was glad he asked the question because it made us explore that a little bit further. And I appreciate the research you've done there, Alex, because like you said, you didn't know before you looked into it a little bit more. And that's it's really good stuff. Um, next question is from Ver Kroiks. I hope I pronounced that right. Is there any logic to the rules we've seen where players have to socially distance on the bench before they go out and contact each other at corners, 50-50s, etc.? So I guess he's talking about the Bundesliga, um, he or she, I should say. Uh, the physical distancing we're seeing on the bench, is is there logic to, to that, Alec? No. <laughs> <laughs> it makes no difference. Well, OK, that's not fair. So... Uh... This is based on the idea that football actually generates a very low amount of close contact. Um, so there's right. this study, which I've seen repeated a lot lately, from Aarhus University in Denmark, which suggests players only spend 1.5 minutes in close contact in any given game. This is absolutely misleading. The danger to players is not matches. We've never said it was matches. We've always insisted it was training. In matches, players will be closely observed by officials, and the baseline risk is low anyway. The actual amount of contact time is relatively low. I don't think anyone would dispute that. But in training, players are only monitored by coaching staff, not by officials, and players are in constant close contact. The idea that players in training are suddenly going to stop putting their arms around each other when they score, like messing around, like the amount, like anyone who's ever been on a training pitch with a team will know that it involves a lot of like pushing, shoving, playful, fighting, whatever, like... You know, these are young men messing around on a football pitch. They're very well paid, but they're also often 20, 21 year olds, 22 year olds. 
the idea that that kind of experience, especially being back amongst your close friends on the team after such a protracted period of lockdown, will not result in any close contact is staggering. Like, that's simply implausible. And I think this attempt, which has been, I think, promoted by the Premier League in particular, and also notably by La Liga, which commissioned its own study to find a very similar thing, is it's actively misleading. The danger is not the matches. The danger is the training. So there is a logic to the rules, but it's it's a logic of distraction. <laughs> it's not a logic based in science. It's a logic based in PR. Yeah, no, that I was going to say that that makes sense from a sort of again a public health message in a way. It's um, it's a it's a visual reminder to us all, if yeah. anything, and to the players. It's a it's um, changing habits, isn't it? Yes, yeah. it's that kind of cognitive um, behavioural approach. You know, you're doing something different yeah. as a reminder that you have to behave differently generally. Yeah. Um, so from that perspective, it does make sense, but it's not going it, to. It's unlikely to have a direct impact on on whether they get coronavirus or not. Um, at least at that. At that point Absolutely. the behavioral change could, could save them but but perhaps sitting a few meters apart on a bench won't exactly. um next question is from josh pardy he says have you heard the theory that covid19 has already has already been around once in late 2019 at least here in the states a particularly nasty bug went around about christmas if so what's your take if not is it possible it flew under the radar like that so this is a good question i think it's worth being critical around the reported first instances of coronavirus as with any pulmonary virus as with any virus generally it's it's very hard to identify precisely when the first case was in the u.s there seems to be compelling evidence however to suggest that the first person with sars-cov-2 the coronavirus the novel coronavirus entered the country on january the 15th i personally having looked at the evidence think it's extremely unlikely that there were many cases before that there were certainly no discernible clusters in december and none of the chains of transmission the uh, epidemiologists have been able to establish extend back beyond mid-January. Um, there's plenty of other respiratory viruses with other symptoms. I'm, I'm not disputing that there was a particularly nasty bug around uh, over mm. Christmas in the US. There's plenty of other you know, even coronaviruses, let's not forget that 15 to 30% of common colds are caused by established coronaviruses. So I don't think the Christmas bug was SARS-CoV-2. I don't think it was around in December to any notable extent. Maybe there was an isolated case, but it clearly didn't transmit in the community. I think that only started in mid-January in the US. Interesting. Okay. 
So on the first question, what changes should be made to Project Restart? I mean, the change that we should be making to Project Restart is delaying it until we have suppressed mm. the virus and increasing our test and trace capacity to the same level as Germany. Uh, I really want to hammer home this point with some statistics that were in the press and the scientific press last week. So every day last week, around a thousand people in Germany were contracting coronavirus. And that sounds like a lot until you hear that every day in Britain over the same period, around 20,000 people were contract coronavirus. We are simply in a different world to what Germany is experiencing. Britain's population is 25% smaller than Germany's, but we had 20,000 cases a day, new cases a day, rather than a thousand. We haven't suppressed the first wave of the virus, and yet we are considering coming out of lockdown, getting football back. It's it's staggering. Honestly, at the current rate, I don't think we will get to the situation Germany is in today inside of 2020. By the extent of effort to get back, you know, I think it's mistaken. People seem to think that if we can start testing and tracing now, we'll just immediately get it under control. And once we have testing and tracing, that's not the case. It's pretty easy to do testing and tracing if you have a thousand cases today a day. Imagine having 20,000 cases a day. Imagine having to follow up 20,000 people's daily lives to find all of their contacts. Testing and tracing works when you have suppressed the virus. You can't put the cart before the horse, you know. It has to be the case that we suppress the virus first via lockdown to get back to the point where we could have originally instigated a proper testing and tracing process. Uh, it's not as simple as we now do what other countries have done. We missed that opportunity. As I said, we missed that opportunity on March the 3rd. It's going to take us months of lockdown to get back to the point where testing and tracing will be meaningful and effective. That's a dire reality, but it is a reality, I'm afraid. Um, on the point about Danny Rose and if other people are going to work and risking their lives now, why should the footballers? Uh, no one should be going back to work. We should be intensifying the lockdown to suppress the virus. More people should be stopping work, not going back. We cannot go back to work until we have suppressed the virus and have a testing and tracing infrastructure to install it and suppressed it. It really is very simple. No one should have to risk their lives for their jobs. Not Premier League players, not supermarket workers, not doctors, not nurses. We don't need heroes. We don't need martyrs. We need suppression, testing and tracing. Yeah, and I, I guess the only counter-argument that some people would, would put forward here is that we need to get the economy restarted as well because if we don't that, then uh, that will cost lives over long term because we won't be able to invest in safety nets for for society and i think there's a there's a point there there is there is there's a there's a a glimmer of of logic there um but that shouldn't happen surely at the expense of, of thousands of lives and the best way to get the economies working again is to get back to a stage where we suppress the virus it's it's a short term cost for a long term benefit you know there is an economic argument for this. I, I, I'm not at all averse to the logic that we need to get the economy restarted. I understand that argument. You cannot get an economy restarted when vast amounts of your workforce are going to get really sick. Like, right. I, I just don't think that this binary between either we restart the economy or we continue lockdown is helpful. The only way to conserve any form of economic productivity within the UK is to suppress the coronavirus. I really think it's as simple mm-hmm. as that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you else is darwinism absolutely yeah uh next one is from 30 pieces he says i he or she says i would like to know after his research where does liability lie versus where it should be i only ask because maybe the the premier league on the fa have been cleared from all liability it's probably the only viable option for moving forward with project restart are you aware of um where the liability rests in, in 
in this case, Alex? So today we learned that one club executive has contacted the Premier League out of concern that he might face corporate manslaughter prosecution if a player dies from COVID-19. Oh, wow. So I think the context here is pretty stark. It's certainly something the clubs are worried about. And I cannot see how these clubs will escape liability. They are employers and the workers they rely on are covered by the same health and safety regulations as as you or I, Wendy. Um, This includes the right for players and staff to refuse work if they believe it is too dangerous to safely carry it out. They are protected by the same health and safety legislation that covers the rest of the British population. Liability will be with the clubs, not with the league. They are, players are not employed by the league, they are employed by the clubs. I think that the fact that executives are actively planning for a situation in which they might face manslaughter prosecution shows mm. that the clubs are very aware of the potential criminal proceedings which might which might exit from this process. Like, the very idea that we're considering Project Restart, when you have club executives game planning what to do if someone dies on their watch, is is staggering to me. And I think there's a massive difference, and it's been very clear from the start, to be honest, Chris, between what the Premier League is saying and what the clubs are saying. And what the Premier League is saying is that this will be fine. And what the clubs are saying is, what do we do if one of our players dies? It really brings it home when you um, when you use terms like corporate manslaughter. Yeah. Um, the, the seriousness of the situation suddenly becomes very clear. Yeah. And like we discussed in the first podcast, that doesn't feel outside the realms of possibility. Yeah. It feels sadly like it's a it's a possibility uh, for, for something as terrible as that to happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, do we know who who which chairman it is that's um, that's raises concern? I don't know, but I have a suspicion it might be the Brighton chairman. I I think it would right. be one. One of the one of the clubs that have been more outspokenly critical. I also think it might be because I'm pretty sure it was the Brighton chairman who came forward today to say that one of Brighton players has a partner with a serious health condition, and they right. don't see how they can shield players' partner from the potential effects of restarting contact training. So it wasn't a public. It was in the Telegraph, I believe, today, or maybe the Times. I can find the report if anyone wants to read it. But as far as I know, that was said confidentially but my suspicion might be it might be the Brighton chair really interesting uh, and I'm sure now the question's been asked other chairmen will be, be thinking the same thing absolutely um, so this one is reminds me a bit of our further reading section it's from Brian Mulholland he says where is the best place to look for proper scientific news and updates on the pandemic I don't think I'm alone in being frustrated by the media and government's failure here um, and he, he adds this is why your podcast was so welcome so a little compliment there Alex <laughs> um, I would say as a as a layman who who knows very little about about uh, health crises and data relating to such matters, uh, to me, to me or for me, John Byrne Murdoch from absolute. the Financial Times has absolute. been an absolute godsend. Yeah. Not only because uh, he produces all of the graphs for the Financial Times, which show um, the uh, the death tolls basically in in different areas. Yeah. Um, it's not just that he shows them; he explains the logic yeah. behind them. He explains why he's using different axes. On different graphs yeah. and makes it very clear and I've learned a lot from that and it's been really really helpful. Um, how about you Alex? I Ben Murdoch is on my list as well uh, I would I would say that his work has been exemplary, he's done an extraordinary job in communicating the science to the general public and his work particularly on excess deaths I think has changed the public discussion in Britain
Mm. Uh, it also seems ridiculously complicated the way he obtains his data. <laughs> yes, so yeah. he, he, I think he refers to it as scraping. So yeah. he's, he's set up yeah. um, numerous... Um, I don't even know how to describe it. He, he pulls in data from all kinds of different feeds and has to clean it before then bringing it into his own um, database. I think the only way, sounds... the only comparison you could have would be what Ben Murdoch is doing is something akin to fishing. You know, he, he spreads these right. vast nets wide, brings in the catch and then has to clean it and gut it to actually set, give it to people in a, in a form that they can actually use. I think it's it's very similar to that. He's trawling the web for very messy data and then presenting yeah. it in a way that anyone can understand. And I think those graphs are, like every time I look at them, I get a chill down the very core of my, myself. It's, mm-hmm. It is impossible to look at that those relentlessly upward trending graphs and not mm-hmm. feel a sense mm-hmm. of, of, of despair, really. But yeah, Burr Murdoch has been excellent and he's, he's a really good person and I'm constantly envious of the, the meals that he cooks as well. Like At the end of every one of his threads, he, <laughs> he, he shows uh, the, the meal that he and his partner have prepared over the course of the day. And they both seem to be very good cooks, so that's a very welcome relief from these like incredibly dark crafts is this like small little warm glow of light that comes at the end of the thread so yeah john Mur- murdoch is excellent and I-, I think football people have been on him for a while especially people who are interested in stats and stuff because uh, he's done work on that before but he's an ex- exemplary person for this i think uh, another journalist that i would i would send towards everyone is kai kupfer schmidt uh, who's a journalist for the site for science magazine their work's been exceptional as well and then i'd, I'd recommend some other excellent people on twitter and I- i've actually put together a twitter list which maybe we can share with the listeners, Chris. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As like a, a list of a, just a small mix of experts who, who I try to read on a daily basis. So in no particular order, we have Dr. Adam Kucharski, who's an epidemiologist, Dr. Ian McKay, who's a virologist, Professor Steve Riker, who's a sociologist, and uh, Professor Riker actually has uh, been making headlines uh, in the last week yeah. for being a very prominent critic. He's, he's on the government's advisory board for, for social behaviour and has been very publicly critical of Cummings um, and the effects that Cummings' behaviour and the messaging around it will have on public uh, public health and on particularly following lockdown procedure. So I would I'd recommend actually that people read Steve's thread about that. Steve's a, Steve's a great guy and um, his research is, is really important. Then um, uh, an immunobiologist that I follow for, for a more scientific angle again would be Professor Akiko Iwasaki. Um, she's excellent and her work is is really important as well, offering operating more in a in the US context. But yeah, I've made a made a Twitter list that I'll make public and we can share that if, if people want expert advice. The other thing I would say is if people want something a bit more meaty than just people to follow on Twitter, the place to go is the Science Media Center. Um, this is the gold standard as far as I'm concerned for expert communications on coronavirus. It's a operation that is predominantly designed for journalists, but is good for a lay audience generally. Any member of the public can understand what they put together. So what they do is they gather the expertise of academics and researchers um, and present it to non-specialists in daily roundups, briefings, fact sheets. And if people like what Bern Murdoch is doing, I would recommend they go to the Science Media Centre online to their website. I'll share a link for that as well. The work they're doing is extraordinary and particularly around complexities of testing or transmission or public health policy in general, the Science Media Centre is is an extraordinarily valuable resource at this moment. That's great, Alex. I'll, I'll definitely be giving that look um in terms of 
communicating complex subjects to simplistic folk like me, I would also add uh, Professor Devi Sridhar, who's been on lots of the um, sort of, I would say, mainstream uh, TV channels mm. explaining various things. She's Professor and Chair of Global Public Health yep. at Edinburgh yep. Yep. Uh, Medical School. And I have really enjoyed her explanations, but also her consistency. From yep. the start of the pandemic, she's been saying um, test, track, trace. That's been her kind of mantra. Yep. And uh, yeah, I, I, I really appreciate that uh, she was one of the first to be on that yep. uh, from a sort of mainstream media perspective. And, and she's been fantastic at keeping me in the loop, certainly. Uh, next question is from Seamus Hart again. He's got in a lot. He's, he's done well on this podcast. <laughs> they Seamus. were all very good out. questions. Like, uh, yeah, no, Seamus is, Seamus is fantastic <laughs> and a, con- a, a consistent um, supporter of the extra. So thank you, Seamus. He says, uh, Germany with a population of 80 million at its peak had 315 deaths per day. The UK population of 66 million had 545 deaths on Tuesday. Germany had less new cases on Tuesday, 513, than the UK had new deaths. <laughs> yeah. Why did the Premier League act like they are operating in Germany and not England? I mean, you know, Seamus has made, made the point better than I can. It's 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 staggering and I guess it's, it's partly a rhetorical question as well, but yeah, I mean, why is the Premier League acting like they're operating in Germany not in England? Well, it's a question of competition and finances. The Premier League is, as ever, as a business, worried about money. The, the league needs to finish the season so that it doesn't have to pay too much back of the TV money. We're already hearing today that that's going to be a payback of around 305 million even if they finish the season uh, so that gives you an idea of the staggering cost of a failure to complete the season uh, but it's also I think and this hasn't been made public much but I suspect this is a, a niggling worry at the back of the minds of a lot of, of the Premier League executives is that I've seen a lot of people picking Bundesliga clubs uh, you know it sounds like the Dortmund Bayern game was an excellent advert for that league today I think there's probably a worry among Premier League executives that they might lose fans to other leagues if they don't restart soon. The problem with financialised football is that as the business imperative creates a race to the bottom in terms of the well-being of players, staff and fans, and it's a well-established fact already that we play too much football, that we are playing more football than players' bodies can really cope with, we're playing more football than fans can easily afford to attend or travel to. We're in the ever-expansion of competitive fixtures, we already see the business imperative, which runs, sadly, counter, I think often to the interest of players, staff and fans and I think the desire to restart is driven by this same ultimately problem and the only way to stop the Premier League operating like this is to change how the league is run, how the clubs are run and the overall system of regulation as well and you know in this the Bundesliga also shows the Premier League up their strategies for including fans, for regulating the league, for preventing an over-financialization of football clubs and maintaining them as community assets is, is I think, a, a direction which, which shames the Premier League in this country. And I think that's, you know, that, that reminder of what football could be is probably another thing that the Premier League doesn't want its fans thinking about too carefully. I think you're right, Alex, that there's a, a fear that we'll lose viewers. Um, but I would even go one step further than that. Probably a fear that we'll lose players. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because if That's we don't get back up and running soon, 
soon. We're going to be coming to a point where the transfer window is open. Mm. Germany could have a fully functioning Bundesliga mm. by that point. Yeah. Um, you know, players have got to protect their interests. Yep. If Germany's a safer place to live and to, to play football, then why wouldn't you consider Absolutely. forcing a move? Yeah, that's a um, it, it feels like a possibility. Or no, a real possibility. No, that's a really good point. Yeah, I, I hadn't considered that, but I entirely agree. That seems like a, a very real worry, which I'm, I'm sure one more Alex before I let you go no, not I know you haven't you haven't had your dinner yet you must be sorry <laughs> it's, um, fine. it's fine I, for I, context it's it's 10 minutes past nine in the evening and Alex <laughs> hasn't had his dinner yet <laughs> it's fine it's fine no I, it's honestly such a pleasure to answer these questions and I, I'd just like to really thank everyone for putting them to me because um, it's it's really good to it's really good to be able to, to help people out in this kind of providing this kind of information and it, it makes me feel that the research that I've been doing for the last two or three years now has, has is useful to, to people in, in some way so no I, I don't mind postponing dinner at all it, it seems a small price <laughs> to play to, to be able to talk to talk to the listeners like to be able to validate your absolutely yeah purely work. from <laughs> purely from a like ego position like, <laughs> that, that's the only thing really driving me here too <laughs> So the last one from Matt, he says, yeah, I'd be very interested to hear what you think about the best way to pair for things if they get work. Okay. Um, so how, how do I answer this one? This is, this is the one question that I am, I'm not sure how to answer. I think the sad reality is that things are going to continue to be bad for a long time. I think they will probably get worse too with this number of new infections, with an increase in the R number. I think we are going to see a second wave and I was predicting in the last podcast that that might not be until the autumn. I am now worried that the second wave is going to hit us before the first wave is over, which is we're into novel territory there. I'm, I'm not even sure what that would be like, but I am worried that we are going to experience a second wave without suppressing the first. And what what is to be done? Well, the government seems to have been quite willing to sacrifice their public health policy to save the career of one special advisor. And I think if, if nothing up to this point has indicated that, the government should be treated with caution. I think that that should be the breaking point. Um, it, it is, I'm afraid, up to us. I think what has kept me motivated and has kept me having some faith that we may get through this is a simple piece of data. And that simple piece of data shows that even before the government instigated the lockdown, down, people were already distancing. The biggest uptick we saw in social distancing by many metrics was before the government had actually announced the lockdown. People understood without being told that they had to, that they had a social responsibility to try and contain this pandemic. If the government is going to void its responsibility to try and maintain public health, the only thing that we have is each other. And I am I am relieved to say that people in general, the British public, have been a lot better at following the government's guidance than the government have. Um, mm. I think what we have to do now is continue social distancing after the government have said it's no longer necessary for us to do so. I think people should, wherever possible, stay home, reduce contacts, try and persist as best we can without increasing our daily number of contacts. I think we also have to pressure the government to expand testing and tracing, but first we have to suppress this wave as much as possible. And if the government isn't going to do that, it's going to have to be us. We have to step up and take leadership where the state has failed. I have absolute faith that people are capable of doing this. I spend a lot of my time studying disasters, and the single thing that keeps me going through so much grim material is 
that in disasters, people really do help each other, like way before the state gets involved, after any earthquake, any hurricane, any flood, people help each other first. And I think we are now in a position where we have to rely on collective practices of social care and and mutual aid. And I, I think that is where the hope to finally get out of this pandemic lies. If the state won't do it, it's up to us. It's a really positive note to end on, I think. Um... You know, there are a small minority of people out there who are who are not distancing appropriately, who are going to beaches in their droves and behaving how they would in any bank holiday weekend, which is clearly not appropriate. But um, I must say, in, in my community, in my community, and in many others, the uptake in voluntary activity, yeah. delivering food yeah. and medication to vulnerable people, putting leaflets through doors to say if you need help, call this number, yeah. is just staggering. Absolutely. I mean, it, the vast, vast majority of people. Have have made huge sacrifices and stuck to um, the strict lockdown guidelines. And I think you're right that we're way better at doing it than the government gave us credit for. I mean, it was rumoured that they didn't want to impose lockdown too soon because they felt that people would get fed up of it and and not stick to it. Well, I think they got that one wrong. I think people have been quite remarkable on the whole. And I think that's what we should put our faith in. We should put our faith in each other, not in the government, because we, like, the public have consistently demonstrated that they are capable of taking the necessary measures and making the necessary sacrifices to suppress this pandemic. And I think as long as people stick to those practices and don't lose heart, we will get through it. Alex, thank you so much for your expertise and and more importantly for your your time. Um, It's been a great pleasure talking to you once again. Uh, I, I did say before that people should go back and listen to the first podcast before listening to this if you didn't do that then do make sure you go back and listen (laughs) because it's absolutely fascinating stuff all of alex's research um, on historical pandemics was was news to me and uh, incredible and uh once again you've excelled yourself alex let's hope we don't have to get back together and make a third podcast yeah let's hope uh, let's hope at this point i would say it looks likely i know (laughs) well if if that's what it takes i it's an absolute pleasure and it honestly feels like the most useful thing i I do with my time windy like uh you know doing this kind of work i think is is a, is absolutely what anyone with any knowledge should be doing at this moment and you know i also think that the government has completely underestimated normal people's capacity to understand complicated things like i have mm. had discussions with random people who've never before had any real experience or education in epidemiology or virology or public health policy who have been questioning me about the r rate or the k rate or have been mm. wondering mm. about the best mechanisms that they can take to prevent uh, the spread of a droplet-based disease. Like, it's extraordinary the dissemination of knowledge, and people are educating themselves to an extremely uh, impressive degree. And, yeah, the questions to this podcast demonstrate that. Like, you know, these are excellent questions which which demonstrate that people are far more intelligent and curious and practically minded than the government has ever given them credit for. Like, people want to know what they can do to help so that they might help better. And if that's not a cause for hope, I don't know what is. Absolutely. And I, I can vouch for the fact that Alex replied to every single question because I was <laughs> tagged in all of them. Um, if you're not on Twitter and you want to um, ask Alex a question, please feel free to email podcast at the uk and I will put it to him yeah. um, and, and we'll work something out that way. Um, Alex, once again, thank you ever so much. Now go and enjoy your dinner. Thank you. I will go and enjoy my dinner. A pleasure speaking to you all. Stay safe, everybody. You've been listening to The Extra Inch. 
Thanks to Nathan A. Clark for production. Thanks to Barney for being Italian. Thanks to Adam Gardner for the artwork. Thanks to David Lindner for our intro music. You can find him on Twitter at Davy Shambles and his SoundCloud D Lindner. Do check him out, he's great. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Extra Inch. Email us via podcast at theextrainch.com.uk and subscribe via your usual podcast platforms. And if you do enjoy the podcast, consider leaving us a rating and review. That would really help.